Great job, guys. Weren't they great? I love that. Wow. Everybody cries when the cello starts playing. Just as well we don't have your husband up there with the violin. We'd never get out. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 12. We spent a long time in, in Luke chapter 11, and we won't spend as much time in Luke chapter 12, mostly because there's a single theme that we're going to look at this week, and that is freedom from fear. Now, we've looked at fear in the last few weeks, but it's a theme that Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, returned to as he recorded the teaching and the messages of Jesus. This was something deep in the heart of the first disciples and is deep in the heart of contemporary disciples today. The issue of fear, rebranded perhaps as worry, sometimes rebranded as responsibility. It's amazing how many times parents rebrand just an innate fear by saying it's the responsible way to be a parent. What we'll look at today is where does fear come from? Historically speaking, biblically speaking, spiritually speaking. How does it manifest itself in our lives? And then what are the solutions? How will it be that God will cause his perfect love to cast out fear? Many of us, because we've read the Bible before and we've heard messages like this before, know that scripture there in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 that, that says that perfect love, the love of God, casts out fear. But how, how does God implement, how does God activate that particular truth in our life? And so that's what we're going to look at uh, today. We've got a passage here in Luke chapter 12 that we'll, we'll look at. Jesus, first of all, connects the teaching that he's been doing, especially in relation to the challenge to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So let's look at this together. Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples saying, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Now, we've looked at some of these themes previously. But let's be sure that we remember what it is that Jesus is speaking about when he says the yeast of the Pharisees or the leaven of the Pharisees. Not a word that we use very much these days. Yeast uh, was not actually that 
available in the time of Jesus, it was much more that when you had leavened dough, you took a little piece of it, kept it on one side and used that as a starter for the next dough that you were, that you were working on. So this, this piece of previously, as it were, fermented dough was, was included in your next batch. And that's the picture that Jesus wants us to understand. He's saying, he's saying that something is left over from the teaching of the Pharisees. And if we look at what it is that we've, that we've observed over the last few weeks, that, that left over, that leaven is the message that holds us in fear, guilt, and shame. Of course, if we're taught the requirements of God's law without any message that gives us an indication as to how that law can be fulfilled, we are totally trapped by a fear of God, totally trapped by the guilt of our sins, totally trapped by the shame of our behavior. But Jesus says, be sure to be aware of that and don't allow yourself to be afraid of people who perpetrate fear, guilt and shame. Don't be afraid of them. You see, the disciples were seeing how the, the, the Pharisees were, were waiting for the things that Jesus was going to say and they were looking for something always to catch him out. Of course, they could never catch out Jesus, but you know we have a similar process happening all around us pretty much all of the time. And, and if it's down to us, if it's down to me, of course we're gonna say things wrong. And if people are looking to catch us out, in what it is that we might say that's incorrect, of course, they'll always be able to find fault. But there is a different mechanism, a kingdom mechanism that draws us away from that that Jesus will introduce to us now. You'll remember as well, just a few weeks ago, that I spoke about this journey that goes from fear of God to not fearing the Father. If you look at this passage uh, right here in, in verse Verse chapter uh, chapter twelve verse seven uh, verse five. Golly, I can't get any numbers out today. Verse five. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, the disciples, of course, already are afraid. The disciples already. Fear that they've done something wrong that's inescapable. They're already manifesting a fear of the religious leaders around them, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And Jesus is poking their fear. And he's saying, I know you're afraid. Does it hurt? It's a bit like somebody coming up to you and finding a bruise and going, how did you get that? And it seems an, an unusual thing for Jesus to do. But of course, his purpose is to get our attention fully. He wants us to understand that there is a journey that we have to go on. And if we're going to go on that journey, it's no good ignoring the reality that we face right now. The reality that we face right now is that the world 
is a fearsome place. And it's been created by an awesome, all-powerful God. And if you fell into his hands, it would be a terrible thing. The God of the universe displeased with you? Of course, it's entirely appropriate to you be afraid of such a consequence, afraid of such a situation. And then immediately, Jesus begins to take us on a journey. And the journey begins, first of all, by indicating that the God that we're afraid of is doing things that we ought not to be afraid of. First of all, he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Now, I don't know what it was like the first time that that Jesus said this, but even for me right now, Jesus has just been telling me, you ought to be afraid of God who can kill your body and throw you into hell, and you're thinking, okay. And then the next thing is, he starts talking about birds. And you're thinking, what is going on? What, what is he doing? But you see, he's trying to keep us off balance. And the reason he's trying to keep us off balance is he's wanting to move us in a new direction. Now, if there's any judo experts or martial arts experts or wrestlers in this company of the beloved, there's at least one. Aiden's always there. You know that if you want somebody to move in a direction that they've not been planning to move in, then you have to keep them off balance. And the thing that has happened in the lives and in the hearts of the disciples is that they've been, become familiar and content and even comfortable in the surroundings that have been marked by fear. As a, as a young pastor uh, and as a, as a seminary student, I had to go and visit pres- prisons quite regularly. In London, where Sally and I first started out, we actually had a prison just down the road from our home. It was a high security prison where they kept all of the IRA terrorists. And um, it was right there, just a few hundred yards down the street, an old Victorian prison. And one of the things that you noticed about the prisoners was that they, they fell into two largely distinct groups. One group never accepted their surroundings and always wanted to get out. And the other group became what the prison authorities called institutionalized. They became institutionalized. It was actually better to be in prison than to be out on the streets. It was better to be fed daily, have a daily routine, have a, have a, a schedule that somebody else took care of, even if even if your liberty was, was restricted to the, to the extent that you were only able to have one hour of exercise a day, it seemed better. And the world, with its familiarity, taken care of by somebody else's organisation, really became a world in which they began to settle and become comfortable. 
those people didn't really want to get out of prison. The disciples then and the disciples now often find it easier to live with the conditions of fear, guilt, and shame because the alternative is the scary prospect of being a new kind of person, of new kinds of experiences coming your way, of having to reinvent how you behave and, and how you interact and, and, and having the opportunity to do all kinds of things that, that are unforeseen and unexpected. And all of that, all of that seems to be a less attractive opportunity than staying where you are with what is familiar. And so Jesus wants to get the disciples off balance. You should be afraid of God, he says. Now, what Jesus is not saying out loud, he'll say it in a few minutes, what he's not saying out loud is something like this. Of course you should be afraid of God if you don't know him. If you don't know God, of course you should be afraid of him. Who wouldn't be afraid of the creator of the universe, able to scatter galaxies just with the cast of his hand? How could you possibly, a tiny, insignificant individual, be anything other than afraid in his presence? Of course be afraid of him. And they go, yeah, that's it. You see, I knew that that was right. I, knew, I, I told you. Thomas, I told you it was right. I'm, I'm, I'm staying in this prison. Are you staying in the prison? Oh, good, okay. I'll talk to you through the bars, all right? And then Jesus says, let's talk about sparrows. Okay. Uh, what exactly? Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? I think so. I, I, think I'm, I think I saw them for one penny once. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Hmm. It's a good point. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. It's getting easier for you, Andrew. God doesn't have to wait quite so long to count through your hair as he does mine. <laughs> so now they're thoroughly off balance. They're beginning to lean into a different direction. And then Jesus says exactly the opposite of what he's just said. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I... I, I did, you, did he just tell us to be afraid? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Oh, okay. Now Jesus has a little interlude in his speaking. One of the things that makes Luke's account so rich for us is it, it feels so direct and, and so matter-of-fact in the way that he's, he's sharing the details of Jesus' communication with his disciples. 
And he goes on to speak about the things that they'll need to do as they acknowledge him before others. And when next week we look at the, the future and interpreting the signs of the times and understanding eschatology in relation to our walk as disciples, we'll come back and look at that particular passage. But let's stay with this theme of fear right now because it's enormously important that we understand what it is that Jesus is doing. He's got his disciples off balance. One minute he tells them to be fearful. The next minute he says, don't be afraid. And then he gives them two incredibly powerful images that help us to understand what it is that is in the very heart and mind of Jesus for his first disciples and for us. Where does fear come from? Fear comes from the first moment when Adam and Eve fell away from their relationship with God. They were afraid of God for the very first time. They were hiding from him. Do you remember? We looked at it last week and how they'd sewn together these fig leaves. Suddenly they were ashamed. Suddenly they were feeling guilty. Suddenly they were afraid. And that fear was only only inflated when they encountered God and he spoke to them and grew worse when they realized the consequences of their foolishness, which was that they were expelled from his presence. Now, what was true of his presence was no longer true of their experience. God said the consequence for what it is that you're doing, choosing yourself rather than me, choosing self-determination rather than submission to me, choosing to focus on what you want rather than what I call you to. That decision that you've taken, says the Lord, means that the abundance that you have known in my presence, where I have given you everything that you need, is now withdrawn from you and you will only receive what you need through the sweat of your brow and the labor of your hand. Suddenly, abundance became scarcity. Now, Jean-Paul Sartre, in uh, his famous uh, discursus after the Second World War, uh, a little discursus called the critique of pure reason, one of the most instrumental and foundational philosophical statements of the 20th century, articulated there something that became really the, the theme of the philosophical community for really the rest of the century. The idea of existentialism, the idea that human beings are at the center of the universe and that they need to think of it that way and they need to understand their lives in, in that particular way. And, and the reason that we're to, to, to function in that particular way, said Jean-Paul Sartre, is because the world is defined by scarcity. Now, it's an interesting thing. 
Philosophers have debated his position and, and perhaps adjusted it and, and looked at it from lots of different angles and Christian philosophers have, have really challenged his assumptions and presuppositions. But nobody really has ever doubted this word about scarcity. You know, when the first inhabitants of, of this Miami Valley lived here hunting the game and, and gathering the abundance of, of the fruits of this land, they still knew scarcity because they had to go and get it. The first European settlers who decided to go on this great adventure of striking out west from the, from the eastern seaboard colonies and crossing this gigantic river called the Ohio that was spoken of in such poetic terms and began to homestead this land. They saw a land with enormous potential a potential for abundance, but the abundance was not laid out for them. It was abundance they had to go and get. They had to struggle and fight for it. When this city was founded and people began to gather into this community, one of the most important communities of, of the region west of the Ohio, it wasn't laid out for anybody. There was nothing easy about living here. It was tough. And when, when Dayton's greatest sons began the journey that would mean that human beings would, would at last break free from the shackles of the earth and fly in the heavens... It wasn't just an easy thing that they took on or accomplished at the beginning of the 20th century. It's hard. It's difficult. Life is defined by a scarcity of resources, a scarcity of ideas, a scarcity of opportunities. The world, of course, outside the garden is a world that does not know the abundance of the garden. And so, of course, every human being learns how to be afraid of the scarcity. Of course. What if there's not enough for me and for mine? Now, there are two fundamental ways in which human beings deal with this hard wiring of a fear of scarcity. Two ways. One is called worry and the other is called wealth. These are the two ways in which we seek to mitigate this, this underlying reality that all of us live with, which is things could get real bad. Worry and wealth. Jesus talks about the second of those almost immediately. Verse 13 
Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there will be a store for all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. What do we do with these feelings of fear? Well, surely what you do is you you begin to acquire wealth. You you listen to all of the strategies that, that are offered to you through years and years and generation upon generation of experience and they're enormously helpful and enormously valid. There's no person in the room who wouldn't want to take the wisdom of the ages or the wisdom of the best minds around them to understand how to mitigate scarcity. Of course, But if it becomes the focus of your life, you're lost. You're lost. And if the only way that you can set aside your fears of losing is by you holding on to your life and controlling your circumstances, you'll discover you're not strong enough to control your circumstances and you can't hold your life together. Of course. And yet, of course, we human beings have been the same down through all of the ages. We assume that if we had a little more, there would be a little less of something else. If we had a little more wealth, there'd be a little less fear. Is that what happens? Everybody's chuckling in the uh, congregation because you're starting to think to yourself, "Mm, yeah, maybe not. Maybe if you had a little more wealth, I mean, you know, it's okay having that much wealth, but what about if I had that much wealth? Surely then I'd have a little less fear. But somehow the amount of wealth doesn't have any impact at all on the amount of fear. It's almost as though it's right there inside of you. You can't get rid of it. So Jesus says, look, The strategy of looking for wealth as an alternative alternative to your feelings of fear is never going to help you. You need to have your focus someplace else. You need to have your focus on the one who cares for the sparrow, for the one who counts the very hairs on your head, the one who is concerned about the minutiae of your life. The one who is not so much worried 
about whether you will lose in the next stock market thing or in the next little opportunity that you see, but is concerned about every cell in your body. Focus on him and throw yourself in with his care for you. And then Jesus deals with the other big idea. And he goes off talking like a hippie again. So interesting. Therefore I tell you, verse 22, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. There he goes again. It was sparrows a minute ago and now it's ravens. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Since you can't do this little thing, just add one hour to your life. (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? How much of our effort is predicated on the idea that we can add an hour to our life? I've got my my gym membership. I'm going to add an hour to my life. It's going to cost me $10,000 this year. An hour to your life? You can't do even this little thing. Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you Oh, you of great faith. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, oh, you of little faith. So little faith. Little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagans run after such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. So here we are. Here's the key. If you allow yourself to be defined by the past, your past experience, or the past story of humanity, the past story of humanity, our fallenness, the loss of abundance in the garden, our life of scarcity and struggle down through the ages, your difficulties, and the needs for discipline and hard work. If you allow those to define your life, you will go down the path of either worry or wealth every day of your life. You'll seek to acquire wealth. You will live with the constant besetting fears that circle around your worries every day. Or... You can be defined by the future. 
If you're defined by the past, there is no alternative than to walk on the path of either the acquisition of wealth or the constant multiplication of worry. But if you are defined by the future, something else begins to happen. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, not God, who I'm afraid of. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now one day, the story tells us that heaven will come to earth and we will see the future that God has stored up for us. A future of everlasting abundance and joy in his presence. You see, scarcity is the life of someone who has committed to live in a world that is lost. Abundance is the experience of the person who has focused on the future and allowed the future to break into their presence to change the way they see their life and the possibilities of their life. Anybody getting it? You can look this way or you can look this way. You can look to the past, your past, your parents' past. I mean, honestly, it was an Olympic sport in our family, worrying. Are you kidding me? I would get up in the morning and say, Mom, you're at the same place that you were last night when I went to bed. She said, yeah. Oh. And I'd say, you don't smoke anymore. She said, I, I know, but I just needed to. I just needed one more. I said, what happened? She said, well, I'm, I'm worried about you. You're worried about me? I've been asleep all night. What, what have you been worried about me about? Well, I mean, I, are you going to get a job, do you think? I, I, I think so. Well, I, you know, I just, I don't know. There's so few jobs around these days. Wait a minute. You, you, you just spent the whole night sitting at this kitchen table, renewing your cup of tea, and that's what you've been worrying about? Well, I, I love you, and I'm your mother. Oh, well, that's all right, that's fine. That's fine, I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten that you were my mother, and that, that meant you were allowed to worry all the time. Now, this may get a bit too personal, down south, they'd be saying, you're meddling now, preacher. You're meddling now. Because you're a parent doesn't mean 
that you're allowed to worry. It doesn't come with the necessary equipment. What we're supposed to do is to train our children in expectation and faith. Not pass on to them the infrastructure of worry. Which is what so often we do as parents, don't we? Jesus says, you can't add one hour to your life or an hour of somebody else's life. You can't do anything by worry. Seek first the kingdom. Who for? Your children. Who for? Your spouse. Who for? Your friends. Who for? Yourself. Who for? Your house church. Who for? Your church. Seek first the kingdom and ask that all that is true in the future would break into the present now because Jesus has taught you how to pray. Your kingdom come. The will that we know is true in heaven, let it be revealed here on earth right now. And allow me to believe, Lord, that the abundance of heaven will break out here on earth. That the goodness of heaven will break out here on earth. That all of the manifest wonders of your glory would be revealed here on earth in my lifetime. So here we are. Here we are, we have two alternatives. One causes us to focus on the story of humanity from the garden until now, a story of a struggle against scarcity. Or we focus on the story yet to be written, a story that you will be part of, that looks away from the past and strains towards the future, the heavenward calling Christ, Paul calls it. And as we do that, everything changes. Everything changes. And we haven't got to the best bit yet. We still haven't got to the best bit. Because here's the best thing. Verse 32. Now, if you don't have a Bible, steal your neighbors because you need to read this. Verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Oh, what about that? Is there anybody alive? Isn't that amazing? He's pleased to give us the kingdom. We don't have to work for it. Boy, it's a hard taskmaster, isn't it? That uh, scarcity mentality drives you every day. You've got to save a bit more. 
you've got to acquire a little bit more, you've got to get a little bit more stuff and you've got to keep on worrying about the kids and your friends and your neighbours and the this and the that and the other. Boy, that's a hard taskmaster. But we become familiar with the prison and we get food every day. I mean, it's horrible. You get it every day and... Every so often the sun breaks through the bars and it's not so bad. It's an amazing thing. Uh, this is absolutely true. I've spoken to folks who, uh, who train elephants. The reason that an elephant will not... This, I'm keeping you off balance, that's what that was about. <laughs> the, the reason, because um, you're thinking, what? what we just talking about the king, we talking about elephants. The reason that elephants don't try to escape from the stake that they're tied to, which to them is like a matchstick, is not because they can't pull the stake up, they obviously can. It's because when they were children, they were tied to the same stake and they couldn't pull it up. And now they've learned that because they couldn't pull it up then, they can't pull it up now. Anybody with me? Boy, we've been living with this stuff for way too long, haven't we? Pull up the stakes. Go through the doors, they're open. Drop the chains, they're broken. Don't carry the yoke, it's been taken from your shoulders. There is a new way. And the new way is to look towards the kingdom that the Father is pleased to give us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And so what does freedom look like? Well, freedom looks something like this. You'll go out of here. Maybe you've got the kids with you today and you, you get them in the people carrier. a display case for the American family. <laughs> and when we've tinted the windows, we make sure that everybody knows who's inside the display case because we've got those little stick figures on the back window, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> and you look around and you start to worry. What do you do then? Or, may, or maybe you've, you've got it together and you, you get home and you, you make it all the way through, all the way through lunch maybe all the way through the game that you're going to watch tonight, I don't know. And then you start thinking about tomorrow. And those little worries start coming back and the call of the prison begins to echo in your heart. Pick up the chains, lost prisoner. What will you do then? This is what Jesus recommends that we do. When you pray, say this, Father, not God, not a distant divine being, Daddy. Daddy, I love you and you're amazing. Let your kingdom 
that you've promised and are pleased to give me. Let it come now, right now. Come right now into that fear. Right now into that worry. Right now into that sense of responsibility. Right now into that thought pattern. Right now, Lord. Let your kingdom come. And let your will for my life and the future of your children define the way that I think about my life. And give me today my daily bread. You know what I need. So that's what we do when we leave here. It's a deal? Deal. But perhaps it's right that we should pray with one another because, of course, we need to encourage one another with these things and to ensure that we don't go from this place burdened by any yoke, any chain, any past conditioning that would tie us to the stake that we can pull up. This morning, when you come forward for prayer, you're pulling up the stake. You're pulling up the stake. And if you think you're the only person in this room that worries, then just look around you when the other people start moving forward. As you come forward for prayer this morning, you're pulling up the stake and saying, I'm looking away from the past and I'm straining toward the future. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Chris, um, why don't you bring your band of troubadours up here? Let me pray for you. And at the end of the prayer, those of you who need to pull that stake up, you move forward. And don't worry whether there's people around to pray for you. It's the very act of doing this. It just means that, that the, the intention of your heart is set towards God's word and God's word creates faith and faith is the thing that will move the mountain. Lord, thank you that your perfect love casts out fear. And thank you, Lord, that the mechanism of your perfect love is coming to us from the future with all of the abundance of grace and mercy and, and resources and healing and restoration. And so, Lord, we turn away from the past and we look to the future. And in that very act, Lord, we adopt a position of faith that receives your love that drives away the fear. And this morning, Lord, we pray for each one of our hearts that we would be liberated, Lord, from the paths of the acquisition of wealth, the path of the multiplication of worry and take the path of your kingdom that you're pleased to give us. Lord, may there be the sound of many stakes being pulled up from the ground this morning. In Jesus' name.